Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear in this episode is a live recording of a session that took place at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 in January at the Digi Palace. Here it is. It's nice. It's an honor and privilege to be moderating a panel. I'll try to be a more of a glorified timekeeper and ensure that we finish on time. Uh, it's a very interesting topic we are discussing: uh, Belt and Road. Uh, it's across 84 countries, 434 billion dollars uh, in brownfield projects, 188 billion dollars in greenfield projects. and that's a lot that's happening and we have an amazing panel and it's interesting that you know Bruno Massage has written a book uh, on Belton Road the Chinese new order and interestingly all three of us have at some point of time reviewed the book and so it's uh, you know it's interesting to have this panel and we'll begin with uh, uh, a round of what they feel about this whole Belton Road uh, initiative and then we will have a few more rounds of discussions and we'll open the floor at about 45 minutes mark take a few questions and we'll come through the closing so bruno you would like to start with what does this belton road mean to you and how do you see it well i'll i'll start with that note it's quite remarkable that the belton road has in a way uh started or triggered a truly global discussion Uh, where people from the co- four corners of the earth are are talking about it and and exchanging views on it and i guess that has to be characterized as a, as a part of the success of the initiative that has become a global topic of discussion now in my book i do something that i think is unusual in in the discussion on the belton road so far but i think it's uh, stood up well uh book has been published one or two years ago and that's to talk about the belton road not as a project or even an initiative I dropped the word initiative from my book is a bit of a rebellious uh, thing that I do there uh, but I see people in China doing it more and more I talk about it not as a project or an initiative I talk about it as a, a order a political and economic order so something actually of a much larger dimension and I saw that uh, for example last week traveling in Pakistan the way CPEC which is the Pakistan branch of the Belt and Road has become the framework within which economic and political discussions take place in Pakistan. It's no longer the case that there is a framework given by the West or the United States and then the the CPEC is a project a limited project taking place within that framework. No, CPEC has become the framework. When people in Pakistan talk about economic reforms, they think, well, what is better to make CPEC a success? When they talk about politics, CPEC keeps coming up. you're in a cafe or a bus or a train in Pakistan and you keep hearing the word if you're not fluent in Urdu the word you hear and that you understand is CPEC 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 uh, so CPEC and Belt and Road in Pakistan have become almost the equivalent of the European Union in Central and Eastern Europe or the equivalent of western led globalization in Singapore and South Korea it's a political and economic framework that's already the case in Pakistan now what I what I argue in my book is that if the initiative or the framework 
is successful, then that will increasingly be the case uh, worldwide or in large areas of the planet. The Belt and Road is not about uh, an infrastructure project. Even when it was originally announced in 2013, it infrastructure was presented as only one pillar of five pillars uh, that the Belt and Road has. Uh, it's a political and economic order which will have an impact on global value chains of production. They will be redesigned. China will be increasingly at the center of these global value chains and many countries will be included in Chinese value chains and perhaps no longer as much in Western-led value chains. It will affect political relations. I think we'll talk a lot about this in this session. Uh, it will affect the system of alliances. Many countries will be pushed to pick whether they're going to be part of the Belt and Road world or part of, of the Western world. It will affect security questions. And I argue in the last section of my book that it will always also start to infuse uh, world politics and world society with a different set of values, of political values. We all know what are the values uh, promoted, uh, sometimes uh, announced but not really promoted by, by the West, and China has a different set of values that it wants to promote. So to conclude, what I argue in, in my book, and we'll see in the coming years whether this is too ambitious a, a concept or not, what I argue in my book is that when we think about the Belt and Road, perhaps the equivalent to the Belt and Road is a concept like the West. Uh, it is a, uh, a, a, a plan to redesign and redefine the world order as it exists today. And I think the best indication of this, I'll, I'll conclude with that, the best indication of this is the temporal framework for the initiative. When I started to get interested in the Belt and Road uh, five years ago, it was quite usual to hear that the initiative would be concluded by 2049, which was already a, an, an impressive uh, framework for the initiative. But last year, as I lived in Beijing, I heard more and more people, officials, intellectuals, academics, talk about the initiative as a 100-year project. That means those of us who are interested in the Belt and Road will have uh, 100 years to talk about it, and our children and our grandchildren will also be discussing the Belt and Road, and maybe my children and grandchildren will have to write books on the Belt and Road. Thanks, thanks Bruno. Um, Ambassador Shamsaran, um, you know, you've, you've written the book, you know, how India sees this world. And so how do you see the Belt and Road? <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Sanjeev. Uh, so let me uh, take off from where uh, Bruno uh, left off, which is uh, I would look at the Belt and Road uh, Initiative uh, at operating at multiple levels. Uh, at one level, it is what Bruno says. It's a narrative of power. It's a narrative which uh, tries to, in a, in a sense, offer a very alternative vision of what the global order should be. Now, that may be the intent. That may be the 100-year project. Uh, the intent does not necessarily mean that it will translate into, into reality. Uh, so we should be conscious of that. But there is no doubt that the Chinese, in putting this forward, have put forward uh, what is a narrative of power which draws its inspiration from also a certain vision of the past, which is that China was that great civilization until the Western you know, imperialists came and, and uh, uh, there was aggression against China, the 150 years of uh, of uh, humiliation that China went through, 
but China's natural place in the world is certainly as a great civilization, and certainly as far as Asia is concerned, it has always been, except for this aberrant period, uh, the most important country in Asia. Okay. Now, in that narrative, there is also a certain conception of the Silk Road. That is, all the ancient trade routes. The focal point of those trade routes was, in fact, China, which is not true. But that is how it is presented, because it says silk. Silk is associated with China. Therefore, the Silk Road is all about China. Okay. So what is being put forward as the new narrative, the Belt and Node narrative, then has an integral connection with the concept of the Silk Road. So that is one level at which we are operating. The second level at which uh, it operates, which becomes a little more practical, is as a frame of or as a, as a means of dealing with geopolitical rivalry. So geopolitically, this is a useful concept to have. Why? Number one, because if you're looking at, for example, the Belt and Road, as far as our region is concerned, the Indian Ocean, then this is the answer to what the Chinese call the Malacca Dilemma, which is you have these very major trade routes, energy routes, which go through the Indian Ocean, linking up with Southeast, South, South China Sea, and it is vulnerable. I mean, we in India ourselves say that our pencilar uh, you know, character, in fact, gives us dominance over those routes. <clears throat> this is one way of actually overcoming that. So if you have a, a Chokpu on the Myanmar coast, you have Hambantota on the Sri Lanka coast, and you have Gadar on the Pakistani coast, in a sense, what you are doing is, through those various routes which are part of CPEC and now the China-Myanmar economic corridor, you are trying to get over that Malacca dilemma. Okay. And another aspect, while there is a certain constrainment taking place in the South China Sea, in East Asia, much of Central Asia, much of Eastern Europe, actually the Chinese have very little pushback from, from the West. So this whole concept of a new Eurasian uh, continent, you know, arising. That is the second aspect. And the third aspect, which is perhaps the uh, very frequently talked about, is that China, during the course of its very rapid development, has now created huge surplus capacity, particularly in certain infrastructure sectors. You have heard about steel and cement. This is one way, by trying to hardwire the world, this is one way of taking taking care of that surplus capacity, huge surplus capacity, which has been created. So I think it is operates at all these three levels. No, thank you. I think um, you know, it's, it's good to just build this narrative on to see that, you know, how do we look at it uh, multiple levels? And maybe, Bruno, I'll come back to you on how does, you know, from Europe you would see it. But before that, uh, Manoj, your opening remarks and somebody watching this very closely. Thank you, Sujeev. Uh, back in 2016, I was asked to write this paper by Fiki. They wanted to understand what it was. And in the process of writing this paper, uh, I myself began to understand what this Belt and Road was all about. That is pretty fresh uh, uh, idea from the Indian point of view. I think one of the mistakes we often make is to obsess about CPEC and think that CPEC is Belt and Road. CPEC isn't. In fact, I would uh, argue that neither Indian Ocean no, Asia are the focus. The real focus is Europe. And why is it so? 
The reason is that when the Chinese uh, economy, particularly after the 2008 economic crisis, uh, China took several, a leap ahead as compared to the West. The Chinese decided that now the next stage of economic growth must focus on consumption. Consumption at home, and that they should move up the value chain. That means instead of assembling the iPhone, they should be producing the iPhone of the next generation. But you know, iPhones are $1,000 each. So the market for that is not going to be poor Asia. The market for that is Europe. So the Chinese are targeting Europe, particularly rich Western Europe, as its principal market. And if you look at the manner in which the Belt and Road unfolded, what do you see? You see the rise of east-west railways, railway, um, uh, the, the, the railroad railways from China, trains from China going to the capitals of Europe, Madrid, London, um, um, Duisburg in Germany, um, many other countries, fast trains moving. Now, many people say these trains are not economical. Chinese states give subsidy uh, to some of them uh, to function. But this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. The idea from the Chinese point of view is, just as the Atlantic Ocean, the trade across the Atlantic Ocean was the foundation of the, the, the prosperity of both the United States and Western Europe, Likewise, they want transportation across Asia. Sea transportation, there's the Arctic route, which is yet to be uh, to open up uh, the maritime route, the maritime Silk Road. They want to, con they basically what they're looking for is to crunch Eurasia. Crunch Eurasia with China becoming the other important pole, West Europe and Europe becoming the other pole. And they have been extremely active. Uh, the, the initially, there were many missteps, so people focus on the missteps. People say Humban Tota, Death Trap, etc., etc. But you know, those are distractions. In 2018, Chinese investment in the Belt and Road Initiative went down. But 2019, according to a recent article in the New York Times, the Belt and Road in, in, uh, investments went up 41%. That is, despite the fact that they had a declining economy, the Chinese have again begun investing heavily. And mark you, when we say Belt and Road, this is a Chinese national project, planned by the Chinese, run by the Chinese, financed by the Chinese, the Chinese labor is used to, uh, to uh, execute it. And that's one of the reasons why countries like India and many other countries are a bit worried about the nature of the project. Because it is a national project. It has eventually, at the bottom of, uh, bottom of it all, uh, there's a geopolitical goal. So there's an economic goal which I explained to you. That is China moving up, the, the, uh, the, the, the Chinese economy becoming more and more sophisticated, uh, producing sophisticated, sophisticated goods. So there it, the, whatever the Belt and Road is, it is accompanied by investments that are going on in China, R&D efforts that are going on in China. The companies, the new companies, I mean, already you have for iPhones, for example, uh, you, you have the Huawei uh, smartphone, which has emerged as a rival. So the point I just want to make is that Belt and Road Initiative is about Europe and not so much about Asia, and we should not get too distracted by the Asian leg of it. Thanks, thanks, Manoj. I'll, I'll come back to you on, on the specifics of, for instance, comparative on investments, but I would move with... <clears throat> 
to Bruno, uh, in terms of, you know, as uh, someone in Europe and, you know, talking about Eurasia and, you know, as also a former minister in Portugal, to really look at, you know, what Manoj was saying, this is more of a European issue and which you also talk about uh, a lot in your book. So maybe you want to just talk about how does, you know, Europe, Europe see uh, this uh, Belt and Road? Yes, I, co I completely agree with Manoj. Uh, I'm, I'm actually quite perplexed when I see uh, titles uh, about the Belt and Road, uh, like, uh, you know, um, China's Asian Empire or China's Asian Project or, or, or even the Asian Century, uh, because it seems to me that, that Europe is critical to China's plans. And the way to think about it is we have three main poles of economic development in the world today, North America, uh, Western Europe, uh, and uh, China, China, Japan, well, East Asia. And it's very obvious that uh, whoever controls two of the three will be in a dominant position. So Europe appears very obviously as an indicator. Where Europe goes, the world order will go. It's no longer the case that Europe is a center of power or, or an actor, but it's still um, the chessboard where many of these things will be decided. If you look at the case of Huawei over the past year or two, it's very obvious that if China wants to build truly leading companies in the world, and in a way take over the place that American companies occupy today and therefore America occupies today, uh, it's very critical what happens in Europe. If Europe follows the United States in banning some of the major Chinese companies from its markets, if Europe follows the United States in uh, banning Chinese companies from its supply chains, no company can make everything. So a company like Huawei, just like a company like Microsoft or, or Google, relies on a very extensive and complex chain of suppliers. Uh, China needs access to European technology, needs access to European markets, uh, very affluent markets. It seems very obvious to me that Europe cannot be replaced, uh, at least for the time being, with, with Southeast Asia, let alone Central Asia, let alone Africa. So the future of, of the, at least the world economic order will, in many respects, be decided in Europe. And, and you see that in, in China's decisions, uh, very active in Europe over the past two, three years. Uh, Xi Jinping just announced that 2020 will be the year of Europe for Chinese foreign policy. And we have a summit coming up uh, in Germany um, in May, I believe, where many of these things will be discussed. And I think we'll have an, a certain inkling of where Europe is going. But if you ask me what is the most fundamental question in world politics today, it's this question, is where Europe is going. There are many possibilities. I mean, there are extreme possibilities where Europe would choose China over the United States, it's not plausible. Or where Europe would completely break with China, it's not plausible. But then there's a spectrum of possibilities and every move within that spectrum is incredibly relevant, both for America and for China. Thanks, thanks, Bruno. I, I think before we move on to specific uh, Ambassador Saran, I would like to have a quick take you know, on this issue as to, you know, as a former diplomat and watching these things closely, this whole relationship between Europe and China and Belt and Road, your take on that. Well, I, I, have, I, I do not disagree that uh, Europe is certainly uh, very much uh, a, a target and a focus of the Belt and Road uh, strategy. But uh, I would not uh, uh, say that uh, this neglects uh, what importance Asia has for uh, China. Uh, I, I think it has to be recognized that in, in the Chinese conception, uh, 
uh, the center is Asia. Uh, so we can't get away from that. Uh, the, it is possible to move towards the West because you have now achieved domination of the East. So uh, we cannot delink the two. That this is, this is just a side play. Uh, this is the real play. Uh, no, both are elements of a bigger play. So I think that is the first point I would like to make. The second point is that uh, with respect to uh, how uh, China is going about trying to influence the European uh, flank, uh, you know, it has, it has again, as I said, there are, there are multiple uh, sort of, uh, shall I say, drivers at work. Uh, if you go back to Mao's China, the sense of threat from the United States in the, in the South China Sea, and then later on the Soviet Union in the North, how did China respond to that? It started building up its Western provinces, that you have to move inland, you have to move the center of gravity of Chinese economic development to the West because the East was under threat. Now, of course, Tang Xiaoping's time, it is entirely changed. You know, the center of gravity of economic development, China moved to the coast. What we are seeing happen is that, again, since that element of threat is increasing, particularly from the US and its allies in the East. You know, for example, the Quad that we have been talking about or the Indo-Pacific strategy that we have been talking about. What you are again seeing is a certain move again towards the West. And no longer is it just China's Western provinces. It is extending into Eurasia. So, you know, our Pakistani friends are very uh, fond of talking about strategic depth. So if you are looking at, from the Chinese conception, you are looking at strategic depth. Given now that China is a major power, the strategic depth not only includes Western China, but it includes, in fact, Eurasia. And that fits in very well with the larger conception that Bruno has talked about in his book, that what you are looking now at is China saying, you know, the center of the world is once again going to be Eurasia. The maritime empires which were which were brought into being by the West. No longer is this going to be an era of the seas. This is going to be the era of the land. And this land is going to be dominated by China. So I think if we are looking at how do we wrap our mind around it, I think we have to look at all these different uh, elements. Lastly, I would say that while there is this great effort and investment that Manoj talked about in terms of you know, these these uh, railway lines and you know various various uh, uh, infrastructure projects which are linking Eurasia, which are linking rather the western part of China uh, to Europe and Eastern Europe. Uh, the fact is that it is not economic. So I look at it not so much from the point of view of this being a uh, a, a sort of a new economic crucible which is coming up, but as a kind of an insurance policy that if the other traditional trade routes are going to be somehow interrupted, then we have already in place an alternative.
Okay, uh, thanks, thanks, Ambassador Sarat. Uh, I think coming closer here to India and uh, Manoj, and when you presented this uh, report, how did uh, the Indian business community react to this? And because we see that you know politics moves in a certain way, but businesses see the opportunity, and we are seeing uh, you know sort of trade and business investments between India and China at levels like never before. So how do you see this? Uh, what is happening, and what do you see this panning out going ahead? You know, uh, since uh, most of our audience is Indian, I can be quite frank and say that, you know, we too have our uh, uh, efforts to build communication links. We've been trying to do the Kaladan multimodal project with uh, Myanmar. We've been, uh, we are involved with the Chabahar project, as is well known in Iran. Uh, we have been committed to the International North-South Transportation Corridor. Actually, if you look at the International North-South Transportation Corridor, which main, basically uh, is the idea of multimodal communication from Indian ports, Kandla, Mumbai, etc., to Bandar Abbas in Iran, then by train all the way to Europe. So this is also equally grand, meaning in the sense that in terms of conception, uh, if the Belt and Road train lines move from China to Europe, we too have a concept of multimodal transportation moving north-south all the way up to Europe. And actually test convoys have been carried out, meaning there have been several test convoys. Uh, they are useful, you can do it. The problem is we simply cannot get our act together. We are unable to uh, uh, put in the kind of investments that are needed. Then of course you know that in Iran we have got entangled with American policies. We are unable to formulate uh, in, unable to cut through this American policy, this maximum pressure policy, uh, which has disabled our Eurasian dream. Why, why do I say Eurasian dream? <coughs> you see, uh, if you look at the map of India, you'll see that if you go straight north, the high Himalayas block you off, meaning there's a limit to what you can do uh, in terms of transportation. Uh, Nepal is there. Uh, it's an interesting part because one of the subsets of the north-south uh, north communication, Chinese say they will build a railway line to Kathmandu. Indians say they will build a railway line from, uh, from here to Kathmandu. So we actually have a trans-Himalayan railway, but no one wants to talk about it, you see? So what I'm trying to say is that uh, north Himalaya we are blocked off, to the west because of Pakistan we are blocked off. So which means that perforce in some ways we've got to look at our oceanic identity, which is a good thing. But given the size of India, given the location of India, we have to, we cannot abandon our Eurasian dreams. And the Eurasian dreams can only come through either normalization of relationship with Pakistan or Iran. Now the problem is we are blocked off uh, uh, because of the United States, we've been blocked off that INSTC uh, actually operate through Iran, Chabahar, uh, now, the Americans say you can go ahead with Chabahar, but the point is no Indian company wants to invest because they say if we put in money into, uh, any, uh, into Iran anywhere, we, get, uh, we run afoul of US law. So at some point or the other, uh, India has to have a larger conception of its strategy. India has to have the courage to execute a, 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 a strategy which is in its national interest Unfortunately, right now, I don't see too many signs of that. Thank you. I think we, let's, let's move the uh, discussion to a slightly different track. There's so many things we can discuss under this, and you know, I'm just looking at the clock, and maybe move on to the 
you know, sort of whenever we talk about Belt and Road, I do see that uh, it's just linked to investments, you know, physical investments, how much money is being put in by China. But sitting in Nepal, we see there is a lot of these soft investments that are happening. And there is, as Bruno, you talk about, there's a new value system, a new order they are trying to uh, build up. How do these two things get, you know, go along? Maybe I'll start with Bruno and then I'll take reactions from um, Ambassador Saran and Manoj. Yeah. Okay, some, some notes quickly, and let me start with Pakistan again, because I think there will be some interest here. Uh, you know, you, you, you're sitting in the Islamabad club, talking to some people one evening, and then you suddenly realize that they are talking about estab establishing protocols with Tsinghua University, that they were talking about uh, a relative that went to study in China, and then suddenly you realize that this is, this is a different world because certainly 10 or 20 years ago, uh, this would not be there. And what would be there would be American universities and American protocols. It so happens that China is uh, uh, moving into Pakistan uh, in a way that it never did before, at the same time that the United States is moving away. So you see a new world of cultural connections uh, where people are interested in learning Mandarin, uh, where some people are worried that everyone is going to be speaking Mandarin, but certainly a, a different world from what it was uh, very recently. Uh, and it's not just in Pakistan. Um, the question is being raised a little bit everywhere. Uh, another example, there was a scandal in Europe uh, recently because uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina extended a guarantee to a Chinese state-owned enterprise to build a road in Bosnia. And Bosnia is supposed to become a European Union member state uh, sometime in, in the future, perhaps in the far future, uh, but it is supposed to become a member. Uh, and we don't believe in the European Union in state guarantees uh, for uh, road building. So it's very obvious that Bosnia is moving in a direction where it will be aligned with Chinese economic values, with that sort of Chinese model, economic model which in a way invalidates every plan to become a member of the European Union. The question is, uh, is, is very relevant, and there's more awareness in Europe now that in fact there are two paths, and you can be in either one or the other. And this question then is gonna be uh, particularly critical in things like the internet, internet regulation, data regulation, where I think uh, what happens in India is, is particularly important. Uh, question of the Belt and Road, again, is not only about infrastructure, it's about industry, it's about trade, it's about technology. In my view, the Belt and Road is essentially about technology. And so what happens in India with uh, so-called data nationalism, with perhaps some Indian companies becoming world leaders uh, in, in, in the internet economy, what happens with Aadhaar, all these things are very relevant for, for the Belt and Road, and I think it's one area where very obviously India is at the center. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's very interesting because more students, like you talked about in Pakistan, and I was doing the research in my book, it was very interesting. I figured out that there are more Indian students that are going to China for higher studies and medical education than they are going to UK. You know, that's the that's new realities we are living with, which is very little talked about. So how, how do you see this uh, emerging? Because uh, from, the, again, looking at from India, and how do you see this, the cultural and the value system and the soft power moving around? Uh, so, uh, I'm often asked, you know, that uh, why don't we look at the Belt and Road Initiative as a huge opportunity for India? Uh, India, which requires, you know, uh, infrastructure, it requires capital, it even requires uh, technology. Uh, the Chinese have a surplus of all this and they are ready to share with India. Why are you not signing on to it? 
Uh, yes, um, sometimes the CPEC argument is used that, uh, you know, how can we, uh, with uh, CPEC going through territory which is uh, part of, part of uh, India. Uh, but there is a larger question. The larger question is, as Manoj uh, said, that this is a Chinese design project. This is not a multilateral project. It is a national project of China. Uh, there is a difference. People say, but you signed on to the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, you signed on to the BRICS Development Bank. What is different here? The difference is that in the structuring of the Asia Investment Bank, India had a very critical role to play in determining its structure, what its personnel policies would be, what its lending policies would be, what would be the criteria used for giving loans. All that, India had a very important role to play. Don't forget, India is the second largest shareholder. It, is, it occupies the number two position uh, in the AIIB, it occupies the first position in the BRICS Development Bank. So this is a completely different animal to uh, the BRI. BRI has, is not a multilateral project. So if it is a Chinese design project and it'll be, the dynamics will be determined by China, being asked to sign on to it, I don't think that it's uh, something that uh, uh, a country like India uh, should accept. Having said that, even if we are not part of BRI, if there are projects where there is a certain convergence of interest, there is economic viability as we see it, and it takes into account the priority of the partner country, there is no reason why India should not be part of uh, that. And uh, the reference to the north-south uh, corridor. If we are building a north-south corridor and it links up with the Eurasian corridor, uh, so much the better. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I, I don't have an uh, ideological viewpoint about it. But I think we have to recognize that when you drill down to the level of actually the projects that are being undertaken, the story gets a little different. You know, in terms of what is happening with respect to the debt trap that has been talked about, um, how is the costing of the project being done, what kind of guarantees, sovereign guarantees are being sought from governments for projects which are being taken by, say, uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises. Uh, there, the story is very different from the very big, ambitious, larger picture that we are looking at. Thank you. Um, coming to Manoj, I mean, uh, you know, when we are talking about the soft power, the way we are uh, talking about in terms of how things are changing, in terms of how the, you know, it's not about core investments, it's about the way business is being done is changing, because there's a new, um, new protocols that have been developed. So how do you see, for instance, Indian companies looking at it? Because, and I want to really keep, you know, because we do have the political viewpoint also from your, and security point, but then how do companies from the security agencies looking at this in terms of the soft power part of the, the, the Belt and Road? I think the very obvious uh, <coughs> reference ought to be made to 5G technology, okay? Uh, why I'll say this is, you know, today there's a titanic battle going on between the United States and China on the issue of 5G. Now, the remarkable thing is U.S. doesn't have 5G technology. I mean, so the, uh, uh, the Europeans, Ericsson and Nokia have 5G technology and the Chinese company Huawei. And Huawei is more, far advanced. And the thing about 5G is that unlike 3G, 4G, which we already have on our cell phones, 5G is going to be revolutionary. It's going to power the next industrial revolution, industrial revolution 4.0. So now this battle that is taking place, the United States is trying desperately to block 
they've been uh, trying uh, to get their partners, Australia, Japan, UK, Europe. They've, they've been using all kinds of pressure. They've told Germany that if, we, if you don't uh, ban the Chinese, uh, we are going to stop intelligence cooperation with you. Now, why is this happening? Because Huawei has the most advanced technology, at least two years in advance of anything else in Europe. Huawei will set the protocols, meaning when you connect, when you connect your uh, uh, iPhone, I'm, I, I'm a uh, technological, what should I say, ignoramus here, but when you connect your iPhone uh, to the network, local network, there are certain protocols you follow. Now, those protocols will obviously be decided by the market leader. And that market leader is Chinese. Now, the point is, this is just one of the things. There are other technologies which are emerging. AI, in robotics, in other areas. It's like aircraft. When you have a passenger aircraft, when Boeing or uh, Airbus designed the passenger aircraft, there are certain test protocols. Those test protocols are often led by the United States. Everyone depends on the Federal Aviation Administration uh, to clear those aircraft for flight, saying that, OK, these are now safe enough for flight. And by and large, DGCA and all that copy the FAA protocol. Now, because the United States was the leader in commercial aviation, therefore, the United States set the protocol. Now, the thing is that that world is also changing. The Chinese are becoming leaders in certain technology. And so they will naturally set those protocols. And one other point I want to make about students the Chinese realized something like 10 years ago that if you want to be a world power like the United States, one of the important attributes of a world power is that you have foreign students. In the sense, foreign students come to your universities, uh, they study in your universities, so, and you have quality universities. So if you notice, Chinese universities have been climbing up in their rankings steadily, meaning Tsinghua University in uh, Beijing is one of the, considered one of the finest in the world. Peking University, one of the finest in the world. Now, the thing is, to attract these people, they offer generous fellowships, meaning many Indians, uh, these people are going by with fellowships. Number two, they attract back, they attract teaching talent. Now, uh, the government of India tried this back in the 70s. They said, OK, we'll get back some of our guys. But they said, you become a pool officer, your salary can, cannot be more than that of a uh, uh, university um, uh, lecturer. So now if you are, a, uh, you are, you are, you are in uh, Stanford University and you want to come and um, to join Delhi University at uh, the salary of a pool officer, will you come? No. What the Chinese do, on the other hand, they have, they have several schemes. One of them is what is called the Thousand Talents Program. The Thousand Talents Program, they, they have identified key technologies. They will approach you in your university, wherever you are abroad, and they'll say, what do you want? We'll give you $10 million to set up a lab. We'll give you $250,000 to buy a flat in Beijing. We will give you an annual salary of $250,000. So that guy is willing to come in. But you know, these are cutting edge people. These are people, for example, who are dealing with, uh, right now, the Chinese focus, battery technology, electrical vehicle technology. Because the Chinese say, we miss the, uh, we miss the internal combustion engine revolution. Because in our century of uh, humiliation, this, uh, these, uh, uh, these uh, internal combustion engine cars began. But we are going to be the dominant force when the electrical vehicles and the autonomous vehicles come. And so you, what do you see? You see Tesla opening its first plant 
in China, you find European companies. And the thing with Europe is, companies like Volkswagen, BMW, Porsche, their profitability depends on the Chinese market. And that is the hold that, that uh, China has on Europe. The one country that understands this is the United States, and they don't know what to do. Because the United States has been spending a lot of money, so the United States still maintain a huge amount of dominance in the area of defense, defense technology. But the United States also blew away $10 trillion in fighting useless wars in the Middle East. $10 trillion, meaning any other country would have been affected. So what should I say? This was a kind of a gift to China almost. And now you have another gift to China, but I won't speak about it. Okay. I think, uh, I'll, 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 before we open up, maybe I just want to have a quick intervention from Bruno in terms of these new protocols, because I think uh, you know, uh, working in the consulting industry and working across many countries, I do see that the biggest worry private sector folks have is that new protocols are coming up, like, for, you know, like 5G is coming up, and they say it's, you know, what happens in the US is 4.1G, you know, it's nothing close to 5G. And so new protocols are coming up, and what's that? Because everybody, what we are seeing is that we are being made to be reactive, you know, and you know, we are never being able to be proactive, you know, in other parts of, you know, sort of uh, the neighborhood. And so how do, does, does this protocol thing is going to impact, you see? Yes, well, there's, there are two sides to this question of, of protocols or standards. First, there's a normative side where protocols and standards designed in China become more or less universal, and we may not agree with them, but we have to live with them. They could relate, for example, to privacy. Then there's another side to the question, which perhaps is even more relevant, and that's the monetary side. When you use technology that has been uh, turned into a universal standard that everyone has to use, for example, the USB port in a laptop. If you're manufacturing a laptop, it has to have a USB port. But part of the USB port has been copyrighted, so you have to pay royalties or licensing fees to the people who developed that technology. So far, and the Chinese complain about this constantly, these flows of royalties and licensing fees are going from China to the West, to Europe and the United States. And they amount, in many cases, to hundreds of billions or even trillions a year. Now, as we move to a different world, as Manoj was saying, where, for example, 5G technology has been copyrighted by Huawei and other Chinese companies, not only will these flows dry up, they will reverse. And uh, Western companies, American companies will have to get used to paying royalties and licensing fees in the hundreds of billions or in the trillions to China. This is one reason that people, for example, in Germany are very worried, not to say panicking, because they can see the writing on the wall uh, and they can see that uh, the way the world economy is organizing is really going through a revolution. Now, let me finish by saying that I, 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 agree that what I'm I agree that this is still an open question. What I'm describing is the logic of the initiative. Now, whether it will be successful and the extent to which, to which it will be successful is still an open question. But this, I think, is the logic, this is the purpose, this is the goal. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepperbytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, 
I'm your host, Lakshdatta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.